Well, good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to today's event. I'm Colin Reardon. I'm the Vice Chancellor of Cardiff University, and I'm going to be chairing the event today. Now, this event is the first in our new online public series called uh, Talking Anti-Racism. And the idea is to bring together experts from our academic schools uh, with specialist guest speakers to open up important discussions on race. And that is very important to us here at Cardiff University. Over the last two or three years, we've discovered that actually talking about race and talking about racism is one of the most important things that you can do. Uh, and not just during Black History Month, although that of course is the highlight of the year in this respect. So that means that these events are gonna be held regularly uh, in different, or with, with people from different schools and, and external speakers over a two year period. So this is gonna be a, a, a kind of continuous sequence and that's gonna give everybody in the university the chance to get engaged with this, involved with it um, if they want to. So we do want to open up discussion across the university and beyond, it's a public event. But of course, that's only the first step because um, as you will hear from both of our guests uh, today, our speakers today, uh, it needs to be more than talking. So talking does need to lead to action. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that. So we're absolutely delighted to have, as part of our launch event today, uh, the anti-racism expert, Nova Reed. Thank you very much indeed, Nova. We're really grateful that you were able to join us and to help us uh, start this really important, I think, sequence of talks and events, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Cardiff University. Uh, Nova is one of the UK's leading anti-racism activists. She's a, a TED speaker, an entrepreneur, a podcaster and an author, and she also has a, a background in mental well-being. And she now uses all these uh, invaluable skills in her anti-racism practice and is a passionate advocate for race equity. Also, Nova has recently published a book um, which I've got here, The Good Ally, I can thoroughly recommend it, which promotes and encourages uh, meaningful change uh, in, in this whole area. So thank you very much for joining us today. Um, talking with Nova today is Matt Williams, who is Professor of Criminology here at, at Cardiff University. Uh, very importantly, Matt is also Director of Hate Lab, a global hub for data to monitor and counter online hate speech and crime. So again, this is about not just analyzing, but also doing something with the data that is collected. And Matthew has also published a book. Here it is, The Science of Hate. Actually, there's a new edition of this. It's been really successful, so it's a new edition, which explores how prejudice becomes hate and what we can do to, to uh, stop it. So I think in both cases, there's a sense of, this isn't just about analyzing, this is about doing and, and countering. So that's fantastic. Thank you again, both of you very much. I'm now going to hand over to Matthew to take it from here until we come to the Q&A when I'll, I'll re-enter the fray. See you soon. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Um, and welcome, Nova. It's amazing to have you with us. I'm sorry it can't be in person. I would much prefer it to be in person, um, but uh, events have, have taken over uh, slightly. But what it does mean, um, having it online, is we can have more people. And we currently have around about 250 joining, which is which is amazing. It's not just within the university, but outside of the university as well. So I'm really excited to be uh, with you today, launching Cardiff University's uh, new, new series on, on talking anti 
racism. Now, of course, you know, I have the book. I've had it for quite some time now, and I've, and I've read it twice, believe it or not. Um, and I found it completely gripping. Um, I mean, moving um, at points. You know, I had tears in my eyes at some of the stories that you told. Um, some of the history that you cover, some of the, I've not been aware of some of that history in the past and, you know, shocking, uh, um, uh, appalling events uh, that have led to sort of generations of trauma and so on and so forth. So it's highly recommended uh, by myself, and obviously the Vice Chancellor, but I also uh, think it's a, a really powerful tool for change. And I think that's the the lasting thing that I came away with at the end of reading the book for the second time, and the first, of course, is that it really is a tool for change. And I and I really, I'm quite excited about that because you know th there are sort of uh, movements in in government circles, maybe not the national government, but certainly in Welsh government, <laughs> to uh, we can talk about this, of course, uh, to to make a difference um, in terms in terms of of, of anti-racism. Uh, uh, work and I, you know, I'm really excited. This book has come out right now, um, just in time uh, for the Welsh government's action plan, actually, which um, which I know you're you're aware of. Um, I want to keep the questions quite practical and the discussion quite practical. I think I don't want to kind of veer off into sort of academic uh, discussion too much, because I think that it is important to to communicate to a general audience the power of the words in this in this particular book. Um, so my first question is, if you don't mind, um, and I think it's one that, that a lot of us think about uh, and indeed experience, um, is how do we become more comfortable with talking about race and racism? Hmm. Um, and also, thank you. Um, thank you, Matthew, for that wonderful introduction. And I am very... I am heartwarmed that you have read it twice and recognised that it is a book that you need to return to again and again. So thank you. Um, how do we become more comfortable? Stop seeking comfort. Like this should not, anti-racism work should not be comfortable. Um, we, we have a collective history that is not pretty. Um, and as a result of that, lots of, you know, persistent racism that is is continuing to harm people. So the 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 mysterious part of me is like we need to stop seeking comfort. Um, I had a colleague of mine say recently, um, his, his name is Resmo Menikum, and he does a lot around racial trauma. And he said to hold to be able to hold safety we often talk about safe spaces and being safe spaces for black folk and other people of color um but to be able to hold safety we also have to hold the feeling of unsafety and so for many people who are racialized as white talking about race or racism automatically can make you go to a feeling of discomfort and unsafety and i'm like you've got to learn to hold the tension um another thing is honesty um, racism was built on so many lies in terms of how it was embedded in social practice, in culture, in law, um, how much money was made from it. And so there's a real element of, of being able to have conversations about race and racism with integrity. That means being honest about what where our own isms are, what we do and don't know, where our knowledge base is, and not feeling like you need to know everything but being willing to find out more um, 
rather than defend position and deny and all of that nonsensical stuff so <laughs> that's that's really interesting because I think in your in your book you make this distinction and others have made the distinction of uh, between not being racist and being anti-racist and, and they seem to be two quite different things and I think um, being anti-racist takes a lot more work and that work can be uncomfortable can you say a bit more about that yeah of course um i i i love using metaphors and analogies in my work it helps it helps something that can feel doesn't always feel tangible just make a bit more sense so i liken it to you know going to the gym or some kind of health and fitness club and just taking a photo of yourself and posting it on social media and not making any consistent steps to achieve whatever health outcome you have. So it's also, you know, declaring that you are anti-racist and, and to be quite frank is ego driven. It's much more about perception and being seen to be looking a certain way than it is what am I actively doing in my daily life, at work, in how I parent, in how I teach, in how I interact with community, in places of worship, to be active in that, to, to notice when there is disparity in terms of representation, to notice when there is discrimination happening in front of me, um, to agitate policy at work or in government or whatever it might be. Um, so it, being actively anti-racist is consistent, it's intentional, and there has to be, there has to be sustained effort and I think that's that's the missing component. We can, you know, we can all feel like we're anti-racist, but if we're not doing anything and that's not role modeled in by our behavior, it's actually quite meaningless. So it's, it's, it's obviously not good enough just for someone to say, well, I'm not racist. Mm. You have to actively be anti-racist in your, in your practice and daily practice. Yeah. I remember thinking last year, you were writing your book uh, around the time um, of George Floyd and you know, I was in I, I think I was in the process of editing mine and it, it just became such a, a pivotal moment it seemed um, and what we saw around us there's a massive interest in in your work that emerged from that and we've talked about that in the past um, but there was lots of news about folks going to rallies books on anti-racism became bestsellers so there's a lot of activity um, where people engage in those kinds of uh, um, actions, read a book, go to a demonstration, so on. But then after they've done that, after they've read the book, after they've gone to the demonstration, after they've signed the petition, they feel a bit better. Um, mm. So the, 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 the incident, the, the, the murder uh, in this particular case made lots of people feel bad. They had these strange feelings they may have not felt before, that empathy, um, and they needed to do something about it, it seemed. And this is why we see these trends. I guess my question is, how do we keep up the momentum? We don't want to wait for the next George Floyd event. We don't want to wait for these, what we would call trigger events in, in mm. my field of work, to see this work pick up again. There seems to be this kind of cycle um, yeah. but what you suggest in your book is that it's, it can't be a cycle. It needs to be sustained, as you, as you said yourself. So how, yeah. do we, how, do we, how do we do that? I mean, also, you know, that, that pace isn't sustainable. Um, uh, Matthew, I received 
you know, I, I talk about this a lot because I, I, I want to help people understand the, the, the magnitude of what it was I was dealing with. So I've been, I, I run an online anti-racism course. I've been doing that for a number of years. I've been in this work for a long time. And on average, I will get about 800 visits to my website a month. That's since increased. My average has increased since, since the beginning of 2020. But on average, about 800 hits to my website a month, almost overnight, those hits increased to 40,000. So everybody wanting all of the news, all of the information, all of the stuff all at once, it's not sustainable for anyone. It's not sustainable for people who work in that space. And that, that, that thirst and that urgency, again, is often triggered by guilt or shame, collective guilt and shame, because there is a lot of, of our, our history and, um, and to present day that hasn't been acknowledged or addressed when it comes to racism and our collective and global role in that. And, and there's this feeling like, right, I don't want to feel the discomfort of this. So I want to do something. And that might be buying a book, donating one off to a charity, because that's what also um, some of my colleagues who have charities in grassroots organisations um, who are fighting racial justice, they get these one off donations and then nothing else. So then, of course, it's not sustainable for the charities to continue to do their work ongoing. So for me, like I also do consultancy for organizations and I say no I say no more than I say yes and they'll often be right what can you do in a year what you know these are the objectives we have these are the goals that we want to set and how long is it going to take and my answer is how long is a piece of string like they hate me <laughs> they like me but I, I don't work I don't work I work very differently because anti-racism requires us to not work in this way and it really requires us to slow down and um because you won't keep up momentum and it's also counteracting this urgency which is which is being fueled by um a collective guilt so have I answered your question? I can't actually remember. You have, you have. And I think it's leading me on to another one, as these mm -hmm. things tend to. <laughs> and I, what I loved about the book was the way in which you invite the reader to uh, uh, sort of take notice of the body, what the body's doing in a moment after you reveal something, usually quite shocking or disturbing. Um, and, you know, that intrigued me, actually. And I, and I was doing that. as, a, And it, it's the first time I think I've been invited to do that in a text. And, I, and it obviously took me to mindfulness meditation practice and something that I do now and again um, which I find very beneficial for me in many different ways and I and I'm wondering I mean you obviously engage in that practice yourself um, from you can tell that from the writing um, but I'm wondering does it have a place uh, that kind of meditative or, or mindfulness practice in anti-racism work itself is it something we can use as a tool maybe to sustain our anti-racism work I wouldn't describe it as a tool like I, I, I to me it's life force I can't do this work in a healthy or sustainable way without centering my well-being so I, I, I and others um, who work in a similar way um, often liken anti-racism actually to collective healing because our history is so traumatic and violent and it didn't just go on for one or two years 400 500 years so there is so much research that shows trauma can be passed down for, from generation to generation. I think the most um, up-to-date research shows it can be passed down 
for up to 14 generations in epigenetics. So, you know, trauma being passed down from womb to womb and, um, you know, having difference in cortisol levels and stress response and all sorts of things. So if trauma can be passed down for up to 14 generations, that's going to have a, that has a physiological impact in our body. So if we have become so disconnected from what our bodies are communicating to us, so I get information, often I get information before sometimes I will sense something. Um, and, and what we've learned to do as a human society is only value the cognitive, the academic, and we, we don't pay attention to other, other human senses that are giving us really useful bits of information. So anti-racism and shame go hand in hand you can't do it without experiencing feelings of shame and learning how to process them and so sometimes I'm like let me give it let me give you a tangible example so I was recently contacted by an anti-racism student and she was really struggling to engage family members who uphold racist views and she said I just can't get through they they're saying I'm destroying the relationship by banging on with this anti-racism stuff and and she was really disheartened and has a great relationship with her family and I said how are you approaching it how are you approaching the conversation are you approaching it from a place of self-righteousness are we telling people how they should think and how they should feel and she got really defensive and said well no I'm not I said don't go to the brain what's going on in your body right now she was overheating she was sweating and I said that's an that that suggests that that needs interrogating and then with some time she's like yeah I'm approaching it from a place of superiority so the body gives us information um and I think we should be paying more attention to it and in order for us to pay more attention to it we've got to slow down yeah I appreciate that um it, it kind of reminds me of work in restorative justice so um yeah. I'm a criminologist and, and there's some interest in uh, the healing power in many ways of what they call restorative justice conferences where the perpetrator and the victim are brought together for a healing process. Again, mm. uh, um, doesn't always work, but it, when it does work, it, it, it can have really, really good impacts on the victim. Uh, they feel heard. They feel very often they feel after the restorative justice conference facing their perpetrator that they, they don't think... Uh, a custodial sentence is warranted and in fact some form of community sentence is more likely to result based on you know what what the victim feels in their victim impact statement but also in the in the actual perpetrator um regardless of motivation or whether or not they admit to being racist or homophobic or whatever it is in that conference they get to listen to the victim's experience of pain and trauma as a result not only of that incident but also incidents that have come before it because hate crime is very much as you would agree like a process not a one-off event it's an experience yeah. that you have throughout your whole life in the same with with homophobia and I've experienced that uh, my whole life too um and the power of these conferences is quite is quite is quite compelling I think the the empathy that seems to result from some of those interactions is incredibly powerful so much so that sometimes the perpetrator uh, um, their attitude changes, negative stereotypes are broken down, um, and sometimes they desist in hate crime offending. You know, it's, it's, it's been proven to be far more effective than a custodial sentence might be. Sending them to prison, which sometimes can act like a finishing school for hate criminals, um, yeah. 
it, it, they, they, they potentially come up more hardened, bitter that they were sent to prison for something they very often don't admit to ever doing. They may admit to the, the criminal aspect, but they won't rarely do they admit to actually being racist or homophobic. Yeah. So the extra charge is, is very often the thing they get very, uh, uh, very uh, angry about and resentful uh, about. So I think these, these, these sort of taking it slow, taking it, it doing the dialogue uh, work in those kinds of conferences is actually incredibly rewarding. And I think we're seeing more and more of that in criminal justice, uh, not enough of it, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. You don't have to see it in the States where it probably be fantastic to see more of that kind of work happening. Um, but you know, the UK, Australia are kind of pioneers in that space. So when I was reading the book, it, it really brought up the, that research in restorative justice and, and it kind of resonated very well. I'm a bit like you, um, Matthew, I'm a why person. Like I want to know why people behave in certain ways and why they react like that. You know, the, the behavior isn't like, it is so unnatural. It's so against like, mm. humans are not designed to go around committing these atrocities on one another. We, it, it's not it's not natural for us. So I'm I'm more interested in in the why and what's going on and what can we do about it? Because I have a section in my book called Hurt People Hurt People. Mm. And um, when we don't deal with our own shame and our own past trauma, um, we run the risk of, of, of projecting that onto other people. And I think if more people were in, were, had access to, firstly, had access to and were more, more engaged in this kind of healing work, essentially it is, yeah. you know, would the world look the way that it does now? Probably not. Yeah, is I have a similar chapter. I, I wish I'd called it what you called it. It's, it's way better than my title, but it's on sort of trauma and containment and, um, uh, David Gall, who's a professor at Manchester, did some amazing work with uh, race offenders uh, up in Stoke-on-Trent, probably around about 15, 20 years ago now. It's quite, it, it, maybe a bit less, actually. Um, but he used what, what is termed a psychosocial approach to mm. understanding motivation, if, if that's something we could even possibly get at. Um, and I think the, the key message from his work is that trauma... Um, not only individual trauma, um, sort of childhood traumas, et cetera, the ones we can all imagine, uh, but also community traumas, shared traumas in communities where scapegoats are identified uh, for you know, blame is put on these, these groups uh, in, in a way to vent those frustrations. Now, his, his work is quite interesting because he questions whether or not uh, racism, as we understand it, is the root cause and the only cause for their for their, their hate crimes in particular. He says it's part of the mix, but a lot of that, a lot of that uh, um, trauma experienced by themselves as individuals earlier in life, but also the community is, is in some way sort of impregnated with, with, with racism and, and stereotypes and tropes and so on and so forth. And it, this particular group, whoever they might be, become a container he calls it a container for their for their frustrations. Um, it's an interesting piece of work, um, but I think it what it does it it it, it looks at the problem and um, it looks at the complexity of of motivation. Mm. I think you know I set out on a journey after being a victim of hate crime twenty years ago to try and understand why I was attacked on mm. that day in London, um, and I think I've edged towards understanding. I think I've, I've pinpointed some ingredients 
that 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 might be involved in in explaining why people behave in a certain way but it it's you know the, the science is still in its infancy if i'm honest social science the social psychology our understanding of things like the brain etc um still pretty early days if i'm honest and it, we have a long journey yet to, to truly get to to understand if we ever can um, um sort of motivation for any kind of behavior really but it's it's a tricky one, but I mean, I think I think the psychology, the social psychology, and and the, and the social science has actually made, you know, it has made um, excellent progress, but we've still got quite quite far to go. I'd like to quickly move on now to your work on microaggressions because your TED talk is brilliant. Uh, you you give a great description of uh, your preparation for the TED talk, and it it it, it filled me with anxiety because. Uh, <laughs> The way you describe it is 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 pretty visceral, and I'm like, okay, yes, maybe I'll never do a TED talk now. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but nonetheless, the TED you would never know uh, what happened before the TED talk, um, given your performance. It was brilliant. Um, but in that, you really focus on microaggressions, and I think that's something that that um, uh, a lot of people misunderstand um, and don't. And I think it feeds into um, the work of anti-racism because it's one of those. One of those processes, you kind of first have to acknowledge that you may be causing offence when you don't realise it. And, and that's a key, seems to me like a key ingredient to start becoming anti-racist. Yes. Um, so the reason why I focus on racial microaggressions, and I, I, I name, name them specifically as racial microaggressions because they show up differently than other types of microaggressions. So the term was first coined by um, an academic and psychiatrist called Chester Pierce in 1970, uh, African-American man. And it was originally looking at the, the ways in which African-Americans were treated differently in social engagements and the little slights and everyday discrimination um, that they experienced that their, 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 their white peers did not. Um, and, and it's evolved since then. So microaggressions as an umbrella term can include anybody in a marginalized identity that's you know, different to the majority group. So it could be uh, sex orientation, it could be gender, could be age, could be disability, um, uh, as, as, as well as race. So I, I, just, I just wanna preface that what I'm talking about now is, is racial microaggressions. And so more of what it was in its original term. And the reason I focus on that is, is one of the reasons I think we get stuck with tackling racism is because we get stuck in only associating racism with a, something that's overt, intentional, and a, a violent act but done by somebody who's not a particular nice human being. And we get stuck in that very binary, and I describe it as quite an infantile description, actually. And so I introduce racist microaggressions to help people understand that that racism can also look unintentional, sometimes unconscious, um, and is the way that our suppressed prejudice manifests in society. And I describe it as the the all of the small ways that you know people who are uh, who are black British and are made to feel like they don't belong. So unwanted hair touching, disproportionate stop and search by the police. Um, uh, can, I, can I touch your hair? Where are you from when you're speaking the Queen's English? No, where are you really from when you're speaking native to, to where you are living? Um, lack of eye contact, consistently mispronouncing names, disproportionate amount of people who have to apply for jobs who don't have 
native sounding names in the area they're applying for a job to, all of these sorts of things. And the reason why I focus on them is there is so much research that shows everyday exposure to racial stress like microaggression shows up in black bodies in particular as trauma. And there's been other studies that show exposure to racial microaggressions can show up in the brain in the same way as war veterans who served in war and are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. The, what makes microaggression so dangerous is that, you know, post suggests it's happened in the past, but it is continuing to persist and affects people's mental health, um, especially children. It was a study um, that came out in 2019 by the NSPCC that showed that um, race hate crimes against children was at a three-year high, had increased in the past three years. That was in 2019 that came out. And that children as young as 10 are trying to lighten their skin to avoid racial bullying in the playground. So I, I focus on racial microaggressions because they often happen by well-meaning people who don't think that they're racist. Therefore, we have huge opportunity to address it if more people have an understanding of how they perpetuate it rather than denying it. Um, and also they contribute to so much racial harm and trauma. And as far as I'm concerned, if we do not address racism in a meaningful and honest way and understand the impact of racial microaggressions, they will continue to persist and be a public health issue. They already are one. Yeah, yeah. And a practical question on that, I think is, if you're a victim of a, of a microaggression, um, what do you do? What should you do um, as an as a as a you know in in the field of anti-racism? What should you do? And if you're a perpetrator and you realise or someone's told you that you've made a, a microaggression, what's what kind of what's the healthier response there? I'll start with the uh, I'll start with the perpetrators because it, it it shouldn't fall on um it, it shouldn't fall on survivors of racism to continue to advocate for every single incident of racism it, it just corrodes your mental health it absolutely corrodes it so I will come to that but for perpetrators it's 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 accepting that we've been we have we have been socialized and raised in society where where racism was normalized like it was perfect perfectly legal to inflict racism and to deny jobs and to deny healthcare to people because of the color of their skin. That doesn't just disappear with a law change. So we've learned things socially that get passed down from generation to generation um, that are learned behaviors um, that we think are still okay, consciously or unconsciously. So if you've learned that, if you've been socialized to learn that heterosexual white um able-bodied is normal and everything else outside of that is a default to that is a is a diverges from that then you've got someone learning to do and it's not about being a good or bad human being it's all of it like you you know you do you, you've done or said something racist and here is an opportunity to do something about that and you'd rather know, wouldn't you? So it's about humbleness and being prepared to be given feedback on racist behavior or actions without turning into, well, I didn't mean it, it wasn't my intention, it was just a joke. Because when we get caught up in that dialogue, we're not addressing the harm that's been caused. So it's accepting whether we're good or bad, whether it's intentional or not, um, we can perpetuate racism and we can do something about it. 
So for people who experience racism, the first thing I, I recommend is, is you have to risk assess whether you're safe or not. Because there is a risk to giving feedback on racism that you will receive further abuse, anger, retribution, or further attack. So there is a, an element of risk assessing that needs to happen and also thinking about our own capacity. Well, do I have the emotional capacity to engage with that or not? If, if they cannot receive feedback on their racism and it all blows up, do I have the capacity to engage in that or not? Um, and that's when it's, that's when sort of allies are really important because if you start, you know, if somebody's perpetuating racism to somebody who is black or another person of color and someone racializes white witnesses that, then that's an opportunity for them to say, hold on a second, what's going on there? So that the burden isn't always placed on the people experiencing it. Mm. And you mentioned allies. What would you say, it's a difficult question because you've written a whole book on it, but what would you say makes a good ally beyond calling out behavior and, and, and not being that bystander, but being that uh, sort of uh, responder in the situation? What else, what, what, is it, what does a good ally look like? Pardon me, I hate this question. I'm going to give you the, uh, so um, the reason why I called my book The Good Ally, because I know that it speaks to that part of whiteness that wants to be right, that wants to be on the good side of history, on the right side of law and all of, all of this. Um, but ultimately it's about all of us evolving and being better human beings. And, and that involves a lot of vulnerability, which isn't role modeled in society. It involves courage to, to, to get curious and ask why, um, and potentially not like the answer to that question. Um, again, it goes back to, to honesty and it goes back to, it really goes back to humility and, 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 and empathy, um, Matthew, which I want to talk to you a little bit about we have so much collective shame around our, our, our past, around the transatlantic slave trade and the, the harm that was inflicted on, on, on black African bodies in particular. Um, and the fact that Africans are the only human community who've been written in law as subhuman used to justify the human trafficking of millions and millions of Africans. That hasn't happened. It's happened in different iterations, but Africans are the only human community written by English law as subhuman in law for, for centuries. We've got a lot to undo and a lot of shame to confront. And because we don't like dealing with feelings of shame, we bypass it, anger, passive aggression, um, disassociation, anything but deal with the shame. But the opposite of shame, or the antidote, antidote as I like, um, as Brene Brown calls it, is empathy. And so for me, there's often so much, there is a huge lack of empathy when it comes to tackling racism. So actually developing empathy is a really key component to be able to, being able to dismantle it and to be a better ally and, and human being, or to be better citizens of the world to one another. Um, and it, it, go, it takes me back to the question you, you asked me at the beginning about, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and this sudden volume of people that, you know, this global, this global spotlight on racial justice that we haven't, I have never seen before in this work. Angela Davis, who's still doing activism 
and, and was a prominent figure in, in the height of US civil rights, hasn't seen a global spotlight like that before. But what happened to George wasn't unique. Um, you know, disproportionate numbers of black people being killed by the police, not just in, in the US, but also here in the UK, it's, it's not unique and it's not new. So the question I was asking, why does it take so much for people to feel empathy to engage? And so for me, there is a huge component about building empathy um, to, to experiences that are different, that are different to our own. And I don't know if you want to share more about that in your work um, and mentalizing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in the, the field of psychology, we have sort of mentalizing and theory of mind. They, may, they mean slightly different things. But in terms of mentalizing, it kind of involves imagining what it is to be like another person effectively or an outgroup member in this case. Um, so in terms of prejudice and hate, a process of mentalizing might result in empathy for the suffering experienced by an outgroup. So this is what the restorative justice conferences try try to sort of try to achieve. Um, now, the problem with the restorative justice conference is that it's it's um, an artificial environment in a sense. Um, and the, the question remains, once that perpetrator is put back in their community, in their street, in their home, what, what's the chance of them encountering people different from them on a routine enough basis for that empathy to be sustained over time. And I think this is the sort of central tenet of contact or positive contact theories originally envisaged back in the 1950s by Gordon Orpal. And then since yeah, there's been hundreds of studies with hundreds of thousands of, of participants showing that positive contact under certain conditions can inspire uh, a greater understanding, break down negative stereotypes, promote empathy, and ultimately reduce prejudice. But it's, it's achieving that contact under the conditions uh, as set out um, that is quite difficult. Sustaining that can be quite difficult, especially if you've got communities that are naturally segregated for some reason or another. I mean, there's some interesting neuroscience work as well that shows um, that uh, uh, viewing uh, an outgroup suffering pain um, can result in an inactivation of the part of the brain that regulates empathy. Now, it's an interesting study, a strange study, but an interesting one nonetheless. Um, and I think it, it does say something, but ultimately I think we have to be slightly cautious with brain studies because we're not entirely sure what they're, they're actually measuring. Um, and I, I think I'll stop there because Colin's just popped up on my screen and I think we've had our, our 40 minutes, which flew by. It did fly by. Absolutely, but, but, but really fascinating stuff. And, and thanks both for, for, for a great discussion so far, but we have 20 minutes still. Um, uh, but but we, we got lots of questions in, so we've had to be a bit selective about the ones that uh, we choose. But I'll, I'll start with one, which is I think something you do address in your, in your book, Nova, and it's asking how big is the problem of racist misogyny or misogynistic racism in the UK and what can be done to counteract it? Great question. Yeah, it is a great question. Thank you. Um, and it's enormous. It, it, you know, racism exists in every single, I, I describe it in my book as it, it's in the fabric of the DNA of this country and, and, you know, globally anywhere that was, was touched by and impacted by um, the slave trade and, and colonialism. It's, it's, it's everywhere, unless you're intentionally doing something to root it out. Um, so I think what, 
what this person is describing is something called misogynoir, which was a term founded by a feminist call, called Moya Bailey. And it is looking at this specific set of circumstances that impact um, uh, women who are both black and also women and saying that you can't separate these two things from one another. And actually the, the experiences of, of either sexism or racism they're experiencing are worse than sexism on its own or racism on its own. And so taking that approach from Moya Bailey um, sort of leads into uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's term of intersectionality. We, we're, we're whole beings, we can't separate one from the other. So um, I, I take quite an intersectional approach in The Good Ally. Whilst I specifically center anti-blackness because the birthplace of racism comes from anti-blackness, um, I will make sure that I'm also bringing into in conversations about people who are disabled and black and female, people who are black and trans, people who are black and, and Jewish, so that we've got an understanding where we're not moving away from talking about racism, but we're also thinking about what, how, how does it function when we look at all these other identities? So. I think, yeah, I, it, it is massive, um, but I think that can sometimes overwhelm people, which is why I talk about slowing it down and breaking it down into two, two bite-sized chunks. Absolutely, I'd recommend anyone interested in that to read at least the relevant chapter in, in The Good Ally on it, which is really interesting and I think helpful. There's one on, um, on COVID and the impact of that, and it's, it particularly focuses on the rise in assaults on people um, uh, who, who appear of East Asian, uh, of East Asian appearance after COVID, thinking that somehow this is the fault of. So um, it really just says, please discuss. But of course, you could bring in other aspects of COVID, such as a disproportionate impact on on BAME people across the world. Um, I don't know, Matt, whether you'd like to say something about the assaults. Sure. Are there any figures on that? Start yeah, with? sure. I'm happy to. So. Back when the lock, first lockdown began, um, there were sort of um, reports coming in from some of our uh, uh, police partners um, that, that were involved in Hate Lab, um, picking up this sort of uptick in, in sort of uh, uh, anti-Asian hate, um, potentially linked to COVID. So we took it upon ourselves to start monitoring social media communications at this time. And we were actually monitoring when Trump uh, used his sort of uh, racist term in the White House, etc. And around that time, we saw an explosion of some of the worst racism I've ever seen on social media. Um, we've been monitoring this stuff for a long time, but it was at that moment um, that that some of the, the most egregious stuff uh, in terms of in terms of what we normally monitor uh, was 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 flooding timelines um and we captured a lot of it around that around that time and it also uh just just happened to manifest on the streets also so i got a dissertation student now actually looking at the statistics on this using freedom of information requests from each force in the uk and the current analysis shows a definite uh, uh significant increase that is unlikely to be explained away by uh, increased reporting or enhanced recording, um, which is which are usually the two explanations used. 
um, to, tr to try and, uh, I think, cover over a genuine increase in perpetration. And theoretically speaking, um, if we think about uh, the, the usual explanation for prejudice and, and hate, the perception of, of realistic and symbolic threat, uh, in this particular case, we can see what uh, the perceived threat may have been, sort of a perceived threat to public health or a perceived threat to a person's health or their family's health and so on and so forth. So it, it, it fitted neatly into that theoretical understanding of what we, what we, what we think motivates prejudice and hate. Um, we have seen a decline um, post-lockdown. We, obviously, we, we didn't see too much hate on the streets during lockdown, but we did see that sort of migrate to the online arena more so. A bit like... Uh, uh, the racism around football, it was very much it sort of exploded online when fans were allowed into stadiums. And then it kind of, when we were allowed back into stadiums, it, it migrated back to stadiums, but also seemed to stay online as well. But ultimately, yes, we, we witnessed in the data um, uh, that there's this massive increase uh, uh, um, of the nature you, you, you explained. Also, just to go back to the question Nova said about sort of misogynoir, what's interesting, um, Again, about the data, I'll focus on the data as that's my thing. Um, the British Crime Survey, uh, or I should call it the Crime Survey for England and Wales, it used to be called the British Crime Survey, actually asked the question uh, uh, to respondents, uh, um, which of the following characteristics do you think uh, you were targeted for in the commission of a crime? And it includes gender. Now, we don't see gender stats usually reported by the Home Office because it's not a characteristic that's uh, labelled as, as criminal in terms of hate crime, but the crime survey does ask it. And if we were to include that, um, we'd, actually, we'd actually see it become the second most prevalent type of hate that, that we witness. Um, so that will be a massive increase in, in workload for the police, uh, not to mention uh, the, uh, the other consequences. But also, um, when you look at the intersectionality, gender and race occur quite often in that data set. So we see women uh, are, are, are from ethnic minority backgrounds claiming it was their gender and their race that was targeted in the same incident. So there is evidence emerging, just to talk about the measurement and the prevalence, that it is indeed a very prevalent uh, form of, of hate. Mm. Thanks, Matt. Um, Nova, uh, COVID, what's your, what's your view on that in relation to this? To I, mean, I mean, I mean, um, to to comment more generally it's it was interesting observing it and i write about the impact that this was having on people who worked in the nhs i, I interviewed a number of people who work in in the nhs as caregivers um and you know when we're when we're in lack um we or when when there is fear of scarcity we go into our most primal state some of us and it's not pretty and so I was hearing reports about um, nurses and doctors who were assumed to be Chinese, uh, patients refusing to be treated by them. Um, and that just, didn't, that just didn't stay within the ESEA community. It went towards um, doctors who were black and brown as well. Uh, patients racialized as white, refusing to be treated by them, increase in overt racism within the NHS. Um, and then what we also were finding, what I found really interesting in my interviews in, in The Good Ally was that at the time, we also saw a massive rise in disproportionate impact of, of, of medical professionals dying from COVID. And they were, they were mostly 
Black, Asian, and also East and Southeast Asian. And so when I'm doing, when I'm discovering more and more and unpacking it more, reading more data, you're finding that one of the interviews I have in my book talks about that they started to observe agency staff who were often from Black and other Asian minority, ethnic minority backgrounds being assigned five patients on a COVID ward. And staff who were not agency staff and also white were assigned one patient. And at the time it was being reported that the more exposure to viral load you have of COVID, the more severe your symptoms will be. So it's like, you know, what, what's going on there with those decisions being made to overload? And there was, there's been, there's been um, various other cases that I've read since then of this type of behavior of overloading staff who are black and other ethnic minorities um, in the NHS happening across the board. And of course, during COVID that had devastating consequences. So it's like the decisions that we make when we're in our most primal state, um, often discriminate so these, these crises make things worse it seems yeah. we have to harder absolutely really um good question from uh, I, I hope i'm sure there are lots of our students watching um and one of them has written in to say what can we do as students to work towards the decolonization of the university institution and our own thinking that's quite reflective mm. that's so, a lovely lovely question um i feel like we should all answer this <laughs> Um, it, because it requires collaboration, it requires everybody to, to, to be involved in making decisions about, because for me, it's, it's important that we're not losing, we're not getting rid of the stories that we find confronting, we're including them as well and having a dialogue about, well, what was going on in that time for those, that language to be used and rather than just removing it from the shelf completely. So it requires collaboration. And in terms of decolonizing our minds, again, it's, it's having the courage to look at parts of ourselves that we've hidden or we, that we deny. Because I think if most of us are honest, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, um, Matthew, most of us know where our isms already are. We've just been socialized that it is, it is not okay to express. Well, it certainly isn't okay, but you have to acknowledge them if you're going to go out and commit acts of hate, but you have to acknowledge that they're there to be able to start to unlearn and unpack and address. So there also needs to be an environment where you are encouraged to have difficult conversations that are facilitated and measured without fear of retribution. And there is an environment where if harm is perpetuated people are held accountable and not just asked to make a, a, an apology so it's a combination of getting really intimate with one another um which we're not used to in these settings mm. and that, that I'm sorry. learning as well as learning i think it's a really important one mm. uh, yeah go ahead just just to, to, to agree with nova in the sense that i think also becoming comfortable with having a conversation with yourself Mm. Um, that's where the conversation normally starts. And it certainly started with me when, when, I, when I was sort of coming out as a gay man in my 20s, I had to confront a lot of internalized homophobia. So I had grown up in a, in a mining town in the valleys, um, exposed to uh, the various 
newspapers that my my father was buying at the time you know section 28 meant that we weren't taught about alternative um, family relationships in school. I, you know, I, I, I had elements of homophobia. I, I thought in a homophobic way. So I felt shame when I realized I was a gay man. And I think what that helped me do is confront my other isms in a similar way, because I've gone through it once with my own shame about my own identity. Well, I don't feel shame anymore, I feel pride, but I had to work through that very difficult sort of that very there's a lot of a lot of emotional uh, traumatic work went into sort of that process and I think I've learned hopefully I think I've learned to maybe deal with my other isms in, a, in, in that kind of way and come out the other side uh, sort of more in a more transparent fashion and challenge them I think it's a continue it's continual work it's nothing that you can say I've done it now you know mm. I, I'm still I'm still finding myself thinking things that I shouldn't think and correcting them, um, but I've, I've become more aware of it. In terms of the curriculum, um, I think there was a pretty damning um, report last year. I think saying that you know that only a handful of universities were actively uh, engaged in the uh, uh, decolonizing practice. Uh, if it if a university was involved, it's usually their sort of social science, history, English departments. Um, maybe not uh, sort of a system-wide approach. And, and you know, the article was actually very powerful because it had the voice of students um, talking about what they, what they felt about the lack of progress throughout, throughout the, the sector. And I think that's a key thing. I think engaging students on what they think um, about our curriculum, about our staffing levels, uh, about how... Um, we approach ideas, subjects, and knowledge is, is key to, to change. We've got time, I think, for uh, certainly one, maybe even two more. Um, one's about priorities. Are there priorities we should work on? You know, what should we address first if we want to ensure our institutions and the people within them uh, are helped to be anti-racist? What would you say, Nova? What's the I don't know, top three things we should be doing? that that that's that's a this is the thing so i think what happens with anti-racism is we can get we can get tied up in feeling like if we're dealing with this and it means that we're going to miss out and then we end up having this almost competition about whose experience of of discrimination or social suffering is 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 more important and I think if you it's again it's taking that intersectional approach if you're centering anti-racism that 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 racism needs to remain in the center of what you're discussing discussing and um advocating for and making sure you're hearing voices from you know people who are whose identities intersect with other other types of discrimination so that you're thinking about them all but I think it, it it's a fine line because what often happens is when we try and when we try and tackle everything at once, we end up diluting very, very important issues. So I think what, what that question is communicating with me is, you know, there is a lot of social suffering going on right now. And there are a lot of people de- being discriminated against. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's making it clear that one doesn't counteract the other and that everything is linked in some way. 
I find that really difficult to answer because I think if you're if you're if you're approaching anti-racism, if you're approaching it where racism is at the center and you're thinking about the other identities that intersect with it, then it should all come together in some way. But I also think sometimes you need to hone in and focus on different communities because they will have a slightly different experience. So anti-blackness is not going to be the same as what somebody in a Roma community experiences or what somebody who is East Asian experiences will have common threads. Um, so it, it's both, it's being aware of both, but also not being afraid to focus on those that, that can speak to a specific set of issues as well. We've really only got two minutes, but maybe very, very briefly, both of you, lack of representation, how important is that? Yeah, for me, key, I think. Um, I, I discuss in my book, um, growing up in, as I said, sort of the Welsh Valleys where I didn't encounter uh, uh, many black and brown people. Um, even in university at Cardiff, when I joined Cardiff University as a student in 1993, it was a sociology degree, um, but they, all the students were white. Um, now, I'm not saying that's, that's the fault of Cardiff University's recruitment practices, but I'm just saying that it, it's a particular challenge, I think, for some universities, uh, given their location. Uh, um, and if you look at the, the population of Wales, again, we're looking at a very white population compared to other parts of the country. So I think that's then reflected in staff. I think we, we have a very white staff, um, um, even in the School of Social Sciences, where you'd think the staff might be more diverse. It's, it's, it's still a very white school. And I think when we do have students uh, attending, um, the sort of uh, black, brown, uh, Asian students, they're not seeing themselves reflected back at them very often. I think, I think that is a problem. I do see that as an issue. Um, and I think more should be done in that, in that space. A last word from Nova on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, representation is important. I, and, and actually, I think that's the easiest part to tackling racism. Um, mm. But it cannot be enough because we, we've seen it in our national government. We have, we, have, um, we have people who are Black and Asian in positions of power who produced a report that said Britain is not institutionally racist. And so there, sometimes visibility can be used as a pawn to say, look, we're not racist. So it really requires a multi-pronged approach. Um, and again, it requires intention and also thinking about what is the environment that we're putting minoritized people into and how can we make that more um, inclusive, safer, more honest, more honest and more transparent so that we can constantly be given feedback when things are harming people and work to improve it. That's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Nova. That, that was really superb. Thank you, Matt. Can I thank also uh, Emma and Ali in the background and in particular Michelle Alexis, who's put so much into organising this series. That's it for today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said earlier, you can always watch it back if you want. And uh, please do look up um, The Good Ally. You can find it, uh, I hope, in our university library. If not, we'll get some copies. Thank um, you. Uh, but otherwise, you can certainly get it online in all good university bookshops, including ours. So we hope to see you again uh, at future Talking Anti-Racism events. That's it for today. Hoyle, hoyle Goodbye, everyone, and thank you, Dior. Thank you very much, Dior. Thank you so much.